when we reflect on these agencies, these agencies were created in part in countries like Kenya at least because the existing institutions that would have prosecuted this agenda were not doing so. In our sort of institutional framework of institutions that are only about between 50 and 75 years old, you create an institution like that and it remains an institutional orphan. Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. John Kitongo has been a key figure in the anti-corruption field for the last three decades. In this episode, he talks to Liz David Barrett about his career. From his work as a journalist and involvement in the formation of Transparency International, to the challenges of his time in government, and then the work which has kept him busy ever since. John also discusses some of the wider lessons which can be drawn from his time spent working in government anti-corruption institutions in Kenya, as well as recent trends in investigative journalism, which are critical to anti-corruption work. We hope you enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. I'm Liz David Barrett. I'm Professor of Governance and Integrity at the University of Sussex. I'm delighted to have here with me today John Gitongo, a very esteemed Kenyan activist, journalist and former anti-corruption government leader as well. John, thanks for being here. No problem, no problem at all, no problem at all. Good to have you. Yeah, happy to be here. So John, we usually start by asking people to explain how they got into this whole field of fighting corruption. What's, what's your story? Well, Peter Eigen, the founder, founding, founder chairman of Transparency International, was head of the World Bank in Kenya. So I knew him when I was in high school. And he and my father and my mother, were, they were good friends. And so I was sort of there on the sidelines watching as they set up Transparency International uh, globally. And then I, you know, I, to be honest, at the beginning, I was very skeptical about an NGO involved in the fight against corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, uh, Peter Eigen had seen what was happening in Kenya. And one particular dam project that was financed partly by the World Bank and the scandals uh, around that. And when Peter um, wrote to World, the you know the World Bank, the legal department told him we don't use the, cor- the C word corruption. Mm-hmm. And um, so I followed what was happening at Transparency International. And actually, it was uh, I would say you know, Peter Eigen, uh, Lawrence Cockcroft, uh, Hansi Ogelsos, some of the early leaders within Transparency International sort of sucked me in to help them with research. I started, you know, attending events of, of TI. At that time, I was making a living as a consultant, so I'm trained as an economist. So that, that, that's that's what I was doing. And I was still doing a lot of media responsibilities on that front. But um, I, th- there was a very good overlap because, you know, I could go to different places and involved in early anti-corruption um, meetings and workshops you know, and wearing my media hat, it, you know, for me, the, the real attractiveness of Transparency International in, in those days in the 90s, it, to start with, was, the, you know, just that there was in the world this cohort, growing cohort of people interested and involved in the fight against corruption. It was, it, was, it was inspiring. Plus, we had a major problem around corruption in Africa and in Kenya. And so, you know, I became more and more interested in it. And the more I studied it, the more the, the whole subject area fascinated me. And, you know, when one begins to quantify the losses, not only financially, but in terms of 
the political the political contradictions that come out come out emerge as a result of of uh, rampant corruption. You know, those were still the days of just Cold War had just ended, and all of a sudden the whole anti-corruption fight was not only about fighting corruption; it was about democracy freedom so the 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 move towards more democratic and open governments in africa was a you know uh, corruption was really like an accompaniment at the time so the, that Kenya was know, also having a, a bit of a regime change political transition at the time right yes i mean that was ni- 1989 berlin wall falls uh, 1993, Transparency International is is established. 30 years from this year, actually, and we—that's all people talked about in terms of their political lives at the time. Was the introduction of multi-party politics, and that was not only in Kenya but across the African continent. It's a sort of a wind of change blew across the continent, and within, I would say, about 18 months of the fall of the Berlin Wall, out of about 52, 53 African countries at the time. Um, 30, 34, 35 had in, implemented multi-party democracy or pla- you know, planning or had held elections. And all of them had the fight against corruption at the heart of this new dispensation that came after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So, you know, it, it was heady times. And Transparency International was very much at the center, driving uh, the narrative and the thinking and the, advoc- you know, the advocacy work around issues to do with corruption. So it was a, a heady and exciting time. And that's why so I got sucked in by the Peter Eigen, Lawrence Cockcroft, Jeremy Pope, you know, some of the early leaders uh, and worked with people who I'm still in touch with today at the World Bank, people like Danny Kaufman, etc. Those, those were all... Uh, I noticed and... that you used that that term "sucked in" quite a lot. So those are all pretty persuasive, charismatic um, leaders and campaigners in this field. So yes, uh, yes, yeah. And then you were then so you were working with TI, but you're also working in journalism, and you started to uncover some scandals. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, I mean, I mean, I was only tangentially involved in sort of uncovering scandals at the time. I reported on, on and, and I opined on scandals that were unfolding in Kenya at the time. And other countries are very focused on also on the Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, where Mobutu Seko, another sort of Cold War dinosaur, was, you know, very well ensconced. And so, you know, at the time I was, I was correspondent here for The Economist, and also, you know, I was associate editor of a local business monthly, the executive magazine, eventually became Became an op-ed writer for the East African, which is um, leading regional daily uh, in the region. So it was a good platform to advocate for some of the issues that I believed in and were, were sort of very much part of the political milieu in Kenya and across Africa. And, um, and then I was asked by the the, the fledg- you know the fledgling Kenya Transparency International Kenya Board of Directors to. You know, said, listen, can you, you know, you, you know, you've been helping us part time with this and that. Um, can you help us set up Transparency International Kenya? And mm-hmm. um, you know, already doing uh, a lot of the work. I, I used to release the press, the Corruption Perception Index every year, plus all other documentation that we could get. So it was started. You know, the Transparency International Kenya. The first office was in my, in my, the little study of my two bedroom house. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was uh, so I found myself doing that as well as the media and consulting one. And was it easy to set up the TI chapter? The government had actually refused to register Transparency International. I mean, this is the place where Transparency International started, but the government took between uh, 93 and 1999 
for um, the government gave permission for it to be registered as a as a non-governmental organization. And once it was registered, it was possible to you know to go out and mobilize resources to you know to get an advocacy program going, a research program going, and you know to to hire people and begin so to raise our game as it were. So that was 1999. So you had the TI chapter yeah. established. Not that long after that, you went into government, right? Yes, I mean, I I went into government in 2003, beginning of 2003, end of 2002, beginning of 2003. That was quite a turnaround. I mean, from being not allowed to register to actually being invited into a government role in an anti-corruption position. I mean, yeah, tell us about what your role was. We reintroduced multi-party politics in Kenya in 1991. We had... Democratic elections in 1992, the incumbent ruling party, which had been in power since since independence in 1964, went ahead to win the elections um, in 1992 and five years later in 1997. Of course, complaints from the opposition about the elections being rigged, but Kenyans were committed to their democracy. But then in 2002, the opposition won the election. And that's how I found myself in government, that those who um, had been on the outside, who I had worked with quite a bit from my media days and also from my consulting days, but also when I was at Transparency International, we collaborated with them to push bills through parliament, we were trying to pass anti-corruption legislation, et cetera, et cetera. We were very involved in that. And I moved into government, survived there until 2005, mid-2005. So tell us about what happened, why you say survived there until 2005. Well... It, I mean, it was, it, you know, this was a government born of the fight against corruption. That was the primary election agenda that the new opposition-led government put to the Kenyan people. And it, you know, to, you know, given our very clear history uh, vis-a-vis the, you know, corruption in the previous regimes, it was understandable, and this caught the attention of of, of Kenyans. And so, the government was elected with a huge majority; over sixty percent of voters voted for this administration. So, we came in with a big mandate. So, I was invited into government. I had not expected that at all. I was actually preparing myself to go um, overseas to do a fellowship, mm-hmm. um, and I found myself in government, establishing a new department, the Department of Governance and Ethics, and was involved in a whole range of anti-corruption initiatives that we launched as as a new government. And though you know, the moment I was involved in advising in anti-corruption cases, it was, you know, fairly successful, easy time, you know, not easy, but it was hard, but, you know, without any sort of threats and pressure. Um, the moment we got involved, you know, we, we've, we uncovered some fairly significant corruption scandals in our own in our own government that were sort of carryover from the previous administration. Mm-hmm. And um, as these were reported in the media, this, this delegitimized the administration. So eventually, the government actually sort of broke part of the government, you know, retreating into the opposition. And of course, as they consolidated after this political uh, crisis that they faced, this was a much more conservative uh, regime. And and I, you know, those those who were most energetic about about stealing from the public a window of. You know, the wind was in their sails mm-hmm. and it became more and more intolerable for me, especially when I was sort of pushing for particular investigations to be concluded. And that became more and more uncomfortable in terms of threats, sort of my, you know, just personally, my life being quite intolerable, even though I was a very senior officer in the Kenya government. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rationalization was that we need to do serious politics, politics costs money, and that money is only available from the state. So it's an unfortunate time. 
So there was a kind of internal justification for why it's okay to steal from the state, which was around this sort of the opposition, former opposition's political cause. Is that right? Yes. Um, I mean, I mean, I think I think the the sense was that when you take over from from an administration that has spent twenty four years stealing from the public, um, mm-hmm. then this is a you know that elite is very well resourced mm-hmm. and very cohesive, especially when they feel that anti corruption investigations are threatening them personally and their commercial interests. And so I found myself in a situation where, you know, I was accused of being an opposition more, basically accused, accused of supporting the very people I had spent my, my entire time researching and advocating against in media and Transparency International, you know, some of the most corrupt figures in our society. But I was accused of backing them, but of, of playing to their agenda. So, you know, politically, my situation became quite untenable. Then what did you decide to do? Well, I, I, I resigned from government. I was in exile at the time. And I stayed in exile for a couple of years, 2005 to 2000 and early 2008, just after we had very violent elections, a failed election in 2000, December 2007. And then the government invited me back as, as the, a settlement was reached and people, political class basically was, you know, they formed a government of national unity as it were with both the opposition and the, and the incumbents. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I was invited back. I came back to Kenya and uh, I've been sort of plugging away ever since, quietly. Can I get you to sort of reflect more broadly on taking into account your experience and, of course, your work elsewhere on anti-corruption in other countries too? I often sort of think, or we, we see in many different situations, that if you are in a kind of anti-corruption agency with an investigative role, it's really difficult to go after what are sometimes called the big fish. So you often see anti-corruption agencies that are sort of deemed quite successful as long as they're going after low-ranking or middle-ranking people. But as soon as they try and go after someone who's more senior, then there is often a a political backlash. Um, And I think we've seen that in a a few anti-corruption agencies around the world, in Guatemala, in Indonesia. Yeah, do you have any reflections on that or advice for people who are in those roles? Well, in terms of the big picture, I I think that my my own very clear sense is that you know it's it's you know the institutional design for anti-corruption that was adopted at least across Africa and you know I've seen similar model used in parts of Asia and parts of um, Latin America was one that had at its heart the establishment of anti-corruption agencies. Mm-hmm. In Kenya, we had the Kenya Anti-Corruption Commission, which is now the Kenya Anti-Corruption Authority, and no, is the, yeah, the Ethics and Anti-Corruption Commission now. It has had three permutations, and the model of an anti-corruption or a dedicated anti-corruption agency, with staffed by well-paid, well-resourced official officers, mm-hmm. who, um, as a result, you know, theoretically, because they are well-remunerated, sometimes even employed from the private sector, were not subject to the the pull and push politically and otherwise of the rest of the civil service you know it was it was based on a, on the understanding or or the the basic acceptance that the civil service that you are working in has had major corruption problems and so let's create a, a new bespoke agency to fight corruption and the model that was adopted was very much everyone was doing trips to hong kong 
from across the African continent and the donor community were funding those trips. Everyone went to Hong Kong, you know, um, Australia as well, where they have uh, some very, you know, interesting state agencies that fight corruption, um, the US, you know, et cetera, et cetera. However, the model that was adopted and was most popular was there, an independent anti-corruption agency like the uh, the Hong Kong one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have over 20 across Africa now. Now, upon reflection, ours are developing countries with institutions of governance like the judiciary, civil service, security sector, the executive in terms of the civil, you know, these are all institutions that are still developing, um, that have um, capacity challenges. Those have reduced dramatically since independence. You know, we have large educated population in a country like Kenya. So the capacity is there, uh, but still uh, these are institutions that are being created in societies that are are still developing and have and, and have challenges. And what I think we had not contended with, I mean, the, on paper, the idea was brilliant to have an anti-corruption agency is dedicated to fight, fight against corruption. Theoretically, it has got the goodwill of, of the top leadership in that country and therefore can prosecute the fight against corruption without uh, any fear or favor. Now, of course, the, le- the lessons across Africa are different. These agencies have not been able to prosecute top-level corruption of the kind that captures the media attention the most and causes the greatest anxiety and um, outrage amongst ordinary citizens. Mm-hmm. Those don't, that, that has not happened. And when we reflect on these agencies, these agencies were created in part in countries like Kenya at least, because the office of the attorney general was not prosecuting the fight against corruption. Police did not seem to have the capacity or the, to, to investigate corruption, etc. The existing institutions that would have prosecuted this agenda were not uh, doing so. And so we created these anti-corruption agencies. In our sort of institutional uh, framework of institutions that are only about, you know, between 50 and 75 years old um, in this part of the world, you create an institution like that and it remains an institutional orphan for a considerable amount of time. In other words, it the power resides in our kind, in our societies, in the office of the president or the prime minister, in the Ministry of Finance, and in the security agencies. That's where power and resources are concentrated. Also in public works and other places, but it's office of the president, ministry of finance, and um, the security agencies. Any institution that is created outside those that is ostensibly prosecuting, say, the fight against corruption, which requires a huge amount of political will, will, of you know, in, as of essence, face considerable difficulties in doing that, uh, simply because it's out of the loop. And so that's, I think, part of the reason when we look now, we see anti-corruption agencies that are continually under pressure, under threat, um, the resources being taken away, their leadership being arrested, harassed. And, you know, and this, this, this has intensified as, um, you know, the global sort of geopolitics has also changed and, and priorities internationally change. So that, that for me is what I have sort of, you know, when I, when I look back over the last 30 years is, is, is you know, part of the challenge. I think we've put too much weight on anti-corruption agencies themselves. And you have to accept that if the judiciary is not working properly, if the attorney general, the prosecuting authorities are not working properly, if the police, you know, are not, you know, have, have, have major issues, then this agency will have, you know, difficulties. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's like trying to drive you know, a Maserati down uh, you know, a rough road. It is, it is a beautiful car. Uh, everyone admires it, but one can ask whether how long it will last in, in, in this difficult environment. Without the right infrastructure. Yeah. Correct. 
Got it. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, I like your concept of an institutional orphan. And yeah, the idea that actually these, it's so in a sense, it's not just about technical capacity, resources, or even independence. It's about how well integrated you are into these other institutions that have the power. And then also about how effective. Exactly. Yeah, really interesting. I think I th- I think that um, the other issue that that's key is that public interest and international interest and et cetera, et cetera, media, civil society, um, donors, um, that entire sort of ecosystem of people, their primary interest is in, in prosecution-related anti-corruption work. Mm-hmm. They want to see big fish fried. They want to see um, some of the most you know, senior officials in the country who are often the ones in our kind of societies, it's, 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 it's senior officials and their relatives and their friends who are involved in the most egregious cases of corruption. And, you know, so what do the public want? They want to see some of these people prosecuted. Not all of them, but, you know, because that's not practical. But if, so long as one or two can be dealt with in a, in a severe, direct, and comprehensive manner, and it, if it's done very publicly, you know, there's a feeling that that can, you know, provide a deterrent effect for, for others. The focus on prosecution, I think we, we, we expect it too much. That's my own feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, that even in the most mature democracies, prosecuting a serious case of corruption that involves senior public officials or the relatives of senior officials who are related to the politicians, the big fish as it were, prosecuting the big fish um, is extremely difficult, you know, and it takes time and the lawyers and the, the, the people, the lawyers and other officials who are pro- putting together the case are always not as well paid as the as the lawyers and and accountants. Yeah. On, on on the other side, um, and so we didn't spend enough energy on on what I'll call you know ethics related legislation and instruments that were available. You know, everything simple things exactly on you know on on on. As something like as as seemingly mundane as performance contracting, um, digitizing registries of mm-hmm. of of land, for example, which is a major patronage resource, uh, and introducing the same kind of technical fixes into um, the extractive industry sector, the initiatives to do to do that, the, the the declaration of assets and liabilities, the declaration of interests by public senior public officials who people in public life, that often those instruments are, are more resilient. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, have a much more profound impact on on the institutionalization of good governance than prosecuting anti-corruption. In fact, when you once starts the prosecution of high-level corruption, the initial the initial effect, while very popular with ordinary citizens, which is important for the legitimacy of the existing administration that that is pushing that agenda, I think that you know when one is you know when one is confronted with a situation where one has not choices, but one is sort of balancing between uh, prosecution-related approaches to fight corruption and ethics-related anti-corruption uh, options. One has to sort of be like the fact that the prosecution-related, the, you know, uh, Peter Eigen always used to tell me, prosecution is the bluntest instrument available in the fight against corruption. Yeah. It is slow, it is ponderous, it's expensive, and it is also, in the short term, politically very disruptive. Because if yeah. you're prosecuting quote-unquote, a big fish, that is a political disruption. You know, they're able to call in their chips. They're able to uh, threaten um, senior officials um, and, 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 you know, cause a fuss. Whereas, you know, by building one building block at a time vis-a-vis the, you know, ethics-related instruments that one can deploy, one can quietly and steadily, you know, something as simple as having stenographers in courts has a major impact on 
improving the quality of justice that is delivered. Just because all the judges, all the lawyers are being filmed all the time. Mm -hmm. And those kind of instruments can have a much greater long-term impact than the prosecution of one or two officials because of money that they misappropriated. However, politically, um, the prosecution of well-connected individuals has a far more profound impact for, you know, for, for, for political actors in the short term. And, you know, given that in a democratic situation, you are you are now functioning within a, an election cycle. And so especially with countries that have presidential term limits or term limits for parties, then those term limits mean that even if you're, you're, an, an administration is very keen to prosecute corruption, what we found here is that the window of opportunity to take advantage of, of the goodwill that a new administration has when it's elected is maximum 24 months. Right. Yeah. Before the, before the election cycle kicks in again. Yeah, so actually, in a way, the sort of the fact that corruption is now such a high profile issue, often a campaign issue, you're saying it, it also is not only that it might mean that people end up disillusioned. There's been you know, some interesting research around anti-corruption messaging having a sort of perverse effect because it makes people think it's all impossible to solve. But the other thing that you're saying in a way is that people are then incentivized to do the wrong kind of anti-corruption that looks like it's a big splash when actually maybe doing some of the more background public administration reforms, trying to solve conflicts of interest might make more sense, but is less sort of... exactly. Yeah, politically, yeah, palatable. It's, yeah. It's, it's not as interesting. It's, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's not as media. You know, a photograph of a senior official being grilled by a, a committee of, of of MPs, or or, or 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 in a court in a dock that has far more. It sells a lot more newspapers, and so it, it's a lot more popular. The the, the quiet, plodding bureaucratic fixes are not that exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and you know, I, I'm not arguing for one or the other. I'm saying both have to play for success to be there. I think what I think happened in the first 15, 20 years is that we spent a huge amount of time on on prosecution, and so you know, and when that doesn't succeed, by the time you are now implementing the, the technical fixes in a slow way, you, you have you have the politicians have difficulty convincing people that they're actually serious. They say, listen, if you're not prosecuting anybody, you know, we don't want to hear about people signing uh, asset and asset asset declaration forms or you know re registers of power of, of interest. Though we had seen, you know, in in Africa, we had seen the, the case of Zambia where the publication of the register of interests, uh, making it publicly available, I think helped to improve uh, just overall probity in public affairs, especially amongst the top topmost officials. So th those instruments well deployed and, you know, when it's done transparently, can have a major impact. Yeah, I think we're getting some really interesting results, actually, from asset declarations and from the sort of norms around transparency in public office now. It is starting to, you know, in some cases, it even leads to investigations and it exposes um, discrepancies, but also presumably having a preventive effect. I wondered if I could also ask you about your views on the role of investigative journalism in that anti-corruption ecosystem. So you're still very much involved in journalism through the elephant. Yes. Um, yes. This part of the of the anti-corruption world seems to me really dynamic. Yes. How how do you see that? Why has that become such an important part of, of how we do anti-corruption? I think that in, in anti-corruption work, 
the primary mobilizer of public opinion has always been the media. Even civil society organizations like Transparency International and other, and other organizations involved in it have had to rely on media to spread the message, as it were, uh, of, of how, how, how destructive corruption is, etc., etc. And there's a very natural, organic, symbiotic relationship between civil society organizations involved in the fight against corruption and the media. Mm -hmm. Now, what has happened is, that, of course, <laughs> the thing about corruption is that it sells newspapers. Uh, it tells newspapers. It, it you know it gets people watching their tellies. It you mm -hmm. know it, you know it it the abuse of public office just put more more generically, you know through issues like corruption, um, is very compelling uh, to ordinary citizens. You know, and so that sort of uh, brings people together around that particular agenda in a, in a very special and unique way that hasn't changed. That that underlying relationship hasn't changed. What has happened? In, in the interim is that, you know, media plays this extremely critical role of mobilizing public opinion, but media has gone through major changes. The, the advertising-based model of financing media is in, you know, is in problems around the world. It's just not sustainable. And so, so what we are seeing is media organizations re, reorganizing. There, there was a time when, you know, if you're in the UK, you could go to The Guardian or, or to the Times or to, to Telegraph or whoever, the, the established big names in media, the Sky, BBC, et cetera, and, get a, and, you know, and push this agenda and they'll pick it up, you know, mm -hmm. a big, well-researched well corruption story and they'll pick it up uh, because, you know, it does well for them in terms of people who are listening, viewing and reading them. What's happened, in my opinion, is that the resources simply aren't there anymore. Resources that were once there. In the 1980s, Kenya had, you know, hundreds of journalists in Nairobi who 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 are the the foreign press association in Kenya was very very vibrant very very active it's still vibrant now, but very often the most respected papers in the West um, that are here will have one correspondent for the whole of Africa, sure, which yeah. doesn't work you know it's, it's a failing model, um, but now we increasingly have Asian you know Japanese media Chinese media etc cetera, etc cetera, which you know who in, invest a lot more in the, the grassroots, but are not focused on, on investigating um, corruption. And it doesn't really matter to them as much because, you know, it's just the money doesn't go through their banks. You know, it's, it's not like London where there's always a shared shared interest um, in these issues. So what has happened is that um, what used to be very powerful media organizations in New York, you know, in the West, New York Times, you think of New York Times, you think of Telegraph, Guardian, et cetera, et cetera. These were very powerful organizations with the resources to engage these issues. Many times I've written articles for, you know, I've written op-eds for a whole range of papers around the world in, in many languages. That, that doesn't happen anymore, not to the same extent. Mm -hmm. And I think that collectives of, of journalists who are specialized, but are now seeking, especially seeking new ways of organizing themselves because the media houses simply will not be able to deliver the kind of thing they want to produce for, for, for their publics in terms of anti-corruption articles and investigations. So they, they've formulated themselves into collectives, um, investigative collectives, corrective, uh, international consortium of you know, investigative journalists, et cetera. There's a, there's a whole group of them who combine both resources from the, you know, selling the investigations, the selling content, but mm -hmm. also get donor funding, keep going. And I think this is much more a uh, factor, you know, that comes out of the the challenges that the funding model that media has has faced. You know, the model is under under tremendous 
challenge. But um, at the same time, with the advent of social media, which is much more immediate, we have seen a, a fragmentation and a diffusion of media. Um, so where you had large organizations that employed all the people, now the people have organized themselves into organizations that do the investigative journalism, some focus on the environment, gender, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think That's, it's been just really fascinating development, actually. And um, and really, some of the journalist organizations, they're so adaptive and so good at dealing with actually what is still quite a difficult thing of cooperating with people in lots of different countries and sharing data and being able to trust each other. So, yeah, doing a great job, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's, you know, the, the current model is a model that has emerged as a result of coping with adversity it's an it's, it's one that has emerged from out of necessity and adopting to a very new situation and i think they've done very well and a final question that we always ask people john is what would be your kind of advice or suggestions for anti-corruption activists journalists researchers what do you think are the important areas that we should be focusing on you know things that you think are being overlooked at the moment that would be you know, important to spend more time on? Well, I shan't go into the whole area of building institutions. That is, I think it's already, you know, something that everybody is implicit almost now. People know and understand that. But I think that even in the most corrupt societies, there are certain types of behavior that are subject to social sanction, where, you know, you may have, what we've learned over the last 30 years, that you can have almost complex, sophisticated anti-corruption legislation doesn't really make that much of a difference to anti-corruption if the political will isn't there to implement serious anti-corruption measures, in part because anti-corruption is so political and it's easily politicized and easily deployed against one's political enemies. Mm -hmm. So exploring how traditional methods of social sanction that exist in all our societies, there's certain behaviors that are simply not out of order. In Kenya, which you know has been near the bottom of the corruption perception index, in the bottom of 30% for a long time, there are still areas of public engagement and activity that are not subject, don't have the kind of corruption problems that um, government um, work, you know, the, that, that side of the public sphere is faced with. Mm-hmm. And I think, it's, you know, studying a bit, studying why social sanction may attend to certain activities in, in, our, in our context, things like birth, death, marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are able to mobilize huge resources for those kind of activities. And bringing together collectives of people who's only who may only know each other through their relationship with the people who are getting married but we don't have the major kind of corruption problems we have in other spheres of public life and i think the answers you know are there there are answers within our societies that perhaps we could we could explore a little more and learn and change our strategies accordingly to, to you know to do what works in in our various societies that's great so basically building on social norms approaches yes. Getting a yes. bit smarter about yes. using social structures that are already there and are already policing behaviour in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, one of the things that I, I, I you know, I have been uh, attracted by the work of Professor Borothstein, Gottingen in 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 Sweden, which, um, you know, he, so some work which was picked up by the World Economic Forum that he did, was based on the fact that you know how come. Use the example of Italy. Italy and North Italy and South Italy have had the same legal and institutional infrastructure for hundreds of years. You know, I mean, it's in one country with the same body of laws and, and rules. However, you have more corruption in one part of Italy than the other. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? There's clearly something that is 
afoot or happening in that society that that creates for that situation. And I think studying some of those uh, issues a bit more and getting a clear understanding of them allows us to locate our institutions, our politics, our advocacy, our research in a more solid, firm um, you know, when one is developing a strategy to fight corruption, it it will be more solidly located in local realities, and therefore perhaps be, in my opinion, more effective. That's great. Thank you so much, John. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, and um, I'm sure all of our listeners will be really fascinated by your insights. Thanks so much for finding the time. Not a problem.